Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is McKeever Conwell II, or as he's most well known, Mac the VC, founder and managing partner of Rare Breed Ventures. Rare Breed Ventures is a pre-seed fund that invests in exceptional founders, primarily outside of large tech ecosystems and earlier than everyone else. We discuss how Mac built relationships on Twitter with investors and founders and was able to raise a VC fund all through Twitter, his due diligence process and how he thinks about customer acquisition. Without further ado, here's Mac. Mac, thank you so much for being here and coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for the invite, Mike. It's good to see you, man. Great to see you. Great to see you and and really excited to uh, catch up with you here in chat. Starting from the beginning, Mac, I mean, what was your initial attraction to technology? And maybe what what led you down the entrepreneurial path? So technology was in sixth grade. I had a teacher by the name of Mr. Davis who... I didn't recognize it at the time. It went until like years later that I realized he was a former software engineer. And here he was teaching his group of, you know, sixth graders about robotics and coding. And like before we had language for it. And so by the time I was in eighth grade, I was in robotics competitions. You know, when I was in high school, I started the robotics club in my high school. Um, I was that kind of kid. I also played on the football team. So like, you know. Also that kind of kid? <laughs> yeah, you know, I was that kind of kid. So um, that's where it got started. And entrepreneurship really stemmed from my father. And my father was really, my father was a dreamer. You know, he was a guy who was always looking to do more. And, you know, as a punk 10-year-old kid who told my dad I wanted to be a rapper one day, he asked me the question, like, who, you know, who signs your favorite rapper's checks? And I didn't understand what he was saying. And so he made me go, like, look it up. <clears throat> and realized like, oh, the guy who writes the checks is the one with the real money, not the rapper. The rapper gets to be cool. The guy who signs the check gets all the money. Well, I want to be the guy with all the money. And so, you know, that's kind of like the beginning of like thoughts of entrepreneurship. So, like in the earliest days, that's where it comes from. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. So you started two companies. Like what were like the reasons why you and like the period in your life too that kind of made you want to, you know, put two feet in and actually become an entrepreneur and dedicate, you know, have this actually as your job and obviously build a company yourself? It wasn't that well thought out, right? Um, what happened was so I was a software engineer working for the government and I had a good friend by the name of Patrick Jackson who was obsessed with being the black Mark Zuckerberg, right? Today, he's the CTO of a company called Disconnect, which is a VPN company. And so, you know, he was building websites, he was building apps, like, but the iPhone comes out in 07, he builds his first iPhone app in 08. Like he was that guy. And he was also the first one of the group to like quit his job and move to San Francisco. And so we all, and so he was always talking about how to build things that make money while you sleep. So for me, for our first company, me and my two best friends, it was really to build a company that could make money while we slept, right? It was like, oh, we're, we're engineers, we're software engineers, so we, we're builders, so we could build something. So let's build something cool and make some money. We didn't think of it as a company. Um, we didn't know what startups were. We didn't know what VCs were. We didn't know any of that stuff. It was just like, 
if you build a website, it's cool. You can make money. You can figure it out from there. Um, it wasn't until about a year and a half in that we started going to events, started networking, started meeting people, started learning that we realized, oh, we're building a company. We got to like take this seriously. So we kind of just fell into it, honestly, and uh, ran that first company for four and a half years, uh, went through two accelerators and eventually sold the IP to a Fortune 100 company. So like that was a hell of a ride. It's amazing. That's amazing. And I also love how you said like the founding journey. It was, you kind of fell into it. It was just something that maybe you thought was cool and you were maybe inspired by your buddy and just wanted to, I mean, obviously it's great to build a business that, you know, makes money while you sleep, right? So that obviously is very attractive to want to start a business like that. Why did you decide to like, I would love to also talk a little bit about like your investment journey and why you shifted over to become an investor, and then eventually like dive into the world of like VC and and kind of all that jazz. So my first company, we, we sell the technology off. The second company fails. Uh, end up getting a job at a marketing firm. So you know, I'm working this job at this marketing firm where I've been the CEO of two startups. I've done deals with like Disney and Viacom and you know hundreds and if not thousands of customers and all this stuff to now you know working at a marketing firm, managing a team of engineers, which is very different. And I ended up quitting that job at that marketing firm because we had a client I didn't agree with ethically, so I quit on principle. And the week after that, literally I quit on a Friday and the very next Monday I got an email, a community-wide email from the investment arm of the state of Maryland saying they were hiring. So I was just an arrogant entrepreneur who figured I was good enough and like I could do that job. And so I literally applied for a job off an email and four and a half months later they hired me. Um, so that's how I broke into venture. And that was like the beginning of what I call tell people is my third career. You know, I was an engineer, then I was an entrepreneur, and then I, I broke into the, like the state ran venture firm. And that's really where I cut my teeth in the venture. And what happened was I realized I found the job I loved. Like these people were paying me to go to events, talk to entrepreneurs, and every now and then give them money. It was like, I was doing all the things I love to do already, and now I had the added bonus of every now and then I could give people money and, and watch their dreams come true. And I used to joke with my bosses, like, I couldn't believe they were paying me to do this. It's like the greatest job ever. And I was literally making the least amount of money I'd ever made in my professional career at that point. Wow. And I was so happy. I was so happy. I loved doing it. And that was the first time in my life I had a job where, you know, where people always say, like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I always thought that was BS because, like, who actually likes a job? Right. I found the job that I actually loved. And so that's, like, the beginning of me knowing, like, the rest of my career was going to be an adventure. So what made you leave that position and working for the state and their venture capital arm uh, to start your own thing? So the goal was always originally, you know, get the job there, cut my teeth and like go get a job at a bigger fund. And while I was there, you know, I started a pre-seed fund within the state specifically for underestimated founders. And, you know, it was the first of its kind in the country. And that was really fun. But while I was doing that, I was still finding founders who I really believed in, but couldn't get funded or had a hard time getting funded. And I recognized if I was ever going to back these amazing founders, I was going to have to do it on my own terms. And so I quit my job in 2020, September of 2020, to build Rare Breed for that explicit purpose of 
investing in these amazing founders, no matter who they were, no matter where they were, based on what I knew to be true about startups. You know, whether it was a, a woman building a tumble dryer for wigs or a 17-year-old who's got crazy ideas but is smarter than everybody else in the room or just your Silicon Valley repeat founder who's building a super high-growth company. Those All three of those companies look very different. All three of those founders look very different. And all three of those founders are in my portfolio. When you were realizing, like, what were some of the reasons why some of these founders were were overlooked and kind of were part of your inspiration for for Rare Breed? I tell the story often about the founder who like truly is my inspiration. There's a woman who wanted to build a wig dryer, and I watched her for three years get nothing but no's. Right? She she had an idea for a product in the industry that hadn't had innovation in her lifetime. She had ideas for additional products she wanted to make. It's a multi-billion dollar market that, you know, wigs and hair extensions, I understand most people don't get, or most VCs don't understand, but it's a gigantic market. And she struggled so hard to get access to capital or get anybody to believe in her dream. She decided to become a surrogate mother to raise the capital, to start building a prototype. Like, to watch a woman literally sell herself to raise a nominal amount of money just to start the process of building a prototype, not even like truly build, but just start it, was heartbreaking. And, you know, as a VC, we all say we want to invest in category-defining companies. Like, she's literally building a product in an industry that didn't have, that hadn't had innovation in like 30, 40, 50 years. And yet, we're still investing in the next cool B2B SaaS company. Don't get me wrong. I got plenty of B2B SaaS companies that I've invested. Love those too. But like, when I'm looking at deal flow and I'm trying to pick out unique founders and people have the chance to really generate amazing returns. I'm betting on the founder who's in an industry that doesn't have any competition and who's willing to do whatever it takes to be successful. You can't say that about every founder. And so after watching her journey, like I knew if I was going to do this, I was going to do it on my own. Like when I was working for the state of Maryland, I couldn't get her funded at the state of Maryland. Why? Because I had an IC. And I was like, I can't, like I look around at all you folks and you, it's, it just makes me upset. I know that this woman has a chance to be successful. All she needs is the capital. How dare you hold that from her? And so I started a fund so she, nobody could hold that from her again. That's amazing. I'd love to kind of know how you think about, you know, maybe buckets in terms of what looks like a really compelling value proposition to you versus one that might be just not as interesting. It's always on a case-by-case basis for these companies, right? I am a generalist. Um, but my reason for investing in companies is different for almost every company. You know, uh, the big thing I look at mostly is customer acquisition. I want to know how you're going to acquire customers. Like, yeah, you can have a great product, but like, so what? There's pl- I know plenty of products that are way better than the market-leading companies that will never see the light of day or never go anywhere. I've seen people spend years building like beautiful, amazing products that nobody ever uses. Right. I'm looking for people who I'm looking for founders who know how to find customers and keep their customers coming back. So that's like at the top of my list. Um, Then there's also founders just building amazing products in nascent industries. Right. So like a company like Rebundle, they're making plant based biodegradable braiding hair, hair made out of plants. I ain't never heard of it. I'm pretty sure you haven't either. Like, like that's just an amazing idea. Like, let's let's give that a shot. And you know, that founder had built an amazing brand, and people love the product. You got companies like you know 
super high growth companies that just everybody's trying to get into. And even in the, in the cases of companies like that, it's still usually something else. It's not just this is a high company. It's not just that everybody wants to get into. It's like, what kind of founder are you? You know, what do you care about? Why is this mission so important? We want to know that. And sometimes founder stories and founder journeys are just so exceptional that like, whatever, I'm in. Like, I don't, I don't even know what this business does. It doesn't matter. You sound like an amazing person. I want to be part of your journey. And all of those are buckets. And like that last one happens the least. Like, like I don't do that often, but it happens. Right. And so I'm, I'm always looking for, I'm looking for whatever it is that gives a founder an edge to potentially build a unicorn. Is it their tenacity? Is it their customer acquisition strategy? Is it the market they're, they're in? Like, what's that edge? And that edge can come in many different forms. And so I'm always trying to figure out what that edge is. It's interesting, too, because you talk a lot about you know customer acquisition, which is obviously so important. As you say, there's so many beautiful products that just haven't seen the light of day because the winner in the category won through customer acquisition. To you as an investor, Flipping the script a little bit, how important to you is the product itself? Like, and maybe how beautiful or or just great the product is. Just like if an entrepreneur came to you with like a an amazing product, but maybe didn't have the customer acquisition strategy like panned out. Like, what would be maybe like your reaction per se? Come back when you figure out how to get customers. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's not about what I think of your product. It's what customers think of your products. Like founders ask me all the time, like, what do you think? Like, it's not what I think. Like, what I think doesn't matter. Show me 30 of your customers and tell me what they think and why they think that. And then go repeat that and get another 30. If you can't figure that part out, it doesn't matter how great of a product it is. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is, right? Um, what I think about how beautiful or how great your product is, is nominal. Like, I'm, I may be a customer, but I'm just one customer, right? And if you're going to be a billion-dollar company... You're going to need a bunch of them. And so it's really about, you know, how do your customers react to it? What do your customers think about it? You know, don't just tell me you have a beautiful product. Have your customers tell me you have a beautiful product. And if you have a terrible looking product, but your customers love it so much, they still use it. Then who cares? You can, you now have runway to figure out all the other stuff. What are some like really unique customer acquisition strategies that you've seen? Um, I mean, obviously in, in consumer. Yeah, so... Um, so for my second company was um e-commerce platform targeting sellers on Instagram. And so what I did was I created an Instagram page. It's called Shop Redberry. It's still here. Where I would basically just repost products from sellers I liked. And it gave me two things. One, based on how many likes or comments, I could tell how much consumers might like the product. But also... Whoever the seller was of that product always liked or commented on my posts. And 30% of all my other likes and comments came from other sellers or bloggers. And so I did that for about two months and built up a giant um, spreadsheet of all these different sellers who I now had a touch point with. And I used that as an email campaign to start selling up sellers for my product. We signed up 120 sellers in two weeks pre-product, willing to pay $20 a month for our services. That's insane. That's insane. <laughs> right? I didn't spend a dime. Just spent a whole bunch of time and learned way too much about Instagram. Um, a company I invested in, the founder who was 17 at the time, introduced me to the idea that Venmo was a social media app. 
where it was a it was a tool helping college students get money for college. And what he did was he found all his friends and their friends and sent them all a penny with a message that said, here's money for college. If you want more, check out our website. Wow. <laughs> One of the smartest things I ever saw. Like, that, that is incredible. They signed up 25,000 users in their first oh three months. Oh, my goodness. That. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Right? Like, things like that are really cool. Yeah, that's that's super cool because like we talk a ton on this show about you no longer have the arbitrage opportunities like you once did in like Facebook and Google. And, you know, I mean, I even see brands that come like or, you know, just consumer companies that come and when they talk about growth. It's like, oh, like Facebook, like all our money is going to go to Facebook. And, you know, I know there's like a like 40 percent of all like venture dollars goes to like Facebook ads, which is pretty whack. And so. Um, I love these stories of just like very unique ways to actually acquire and adopt like your early, early customers. That's super cool. Super cool. So how do you also approach sourcing and finding diamonds in the rough? And as well as how far along does the company, since you are focused on customer acquisition, like, uh, well, not focus on customer acquisition. Like that is like one of like a big selling point to you that if you're, you're, your ability to, uh, to to acquire customers, how far along must the company be in order for you to be to be interested? So from steel sourcing, we take deals from everywhere: inbound, outbound, Twitter, LinkedIn, cold emails. I speak at like one to two accelerators a week. Like I look everywhere, right? But then when thinking about how far along a company has to be, it's different for every company. Now most companies we talk to are going to be. Post product, post revenue, show some good growth, interesting market. Some companies are going to be like almost growth companies doing really well. They don't need my money, but I would love to give them money. And every now and then there's companies where they're super early. They're pre-product, right? That's rare, but it's happened. And it's usually a unique founder or a unique opportunity or some special thing there that prompts us to do that. Again, we don't do it often, but we do them. So it's all over the board, right? I got everything from pre-product, pre-revenue, pre-website to 16 million in revenue and you just want to be in the round, <laughs> right? So it's not a great answer, but it's like, this is why our, our portfolio is so widely diverse because like we invest in everybody. That's really helpful because as you say, like even from the very beginning of this conversation, uh, just some like the pre-product stuff, like if a founder truly blows you away, you're going to give them money and you're trusting them to obviously figure it out. I also wanted to know too, and I know you've you touched on this um, quite a few times, but how do you also like source or or able to really build your network through you know Twitter and, and, and social media for your fund as well? I didn't have a network, right? And when I went to go raise my fund, I needed to learn how to raise a fund. And so the tweeting was originally just an experiment. So after George Floyd, I had some things to get off of my head. So I started tweeting. And then I said, I'm going to just keep tweeting and see what happens if I tweet every day for two weeks. It's just what happens. And so as I was doing that, most of my tweets are just information to founders, giving advice, talking about venture. And as I was doing that, I noticed more and more VCs were following me. And so I just like, okay, if I see a new VC follow me, I'm going to send them a DM for a meeting because like, I just need to meet people and learn how to raise a fund. I was, I was meeting with these investors and found that some of them were starting to commit money to my fund. And so I was like, okay, the more GPs I talk to, the, the more I might be able to raise. So then that just became the strategy. And as that became the strategy for my fundraise, I mean, taking as many meetings as I possibly could. So 
from the middle of June to the middle of September 2020, I had over 1,100 meetings. That just started growing the network and it just kind of built and built and snowballed. But like, it wasn't like a planned out thing. It wasn't like I was going in and had like a strategy. It was just something that just happened on the fly and I just kept going with it. Was it one of those things where like you were tweeting all, because obviously with all your experience, both as a founder and and an investor prior, um, just trying to be helpful for founders, all these kind of things, were you always in the back of your mind thinking that I'm going to raise a venture fund? Or was the type of thing where you started just meeting with venture capitalists and they'd be like, hey, Mac, if you did a fund, I would back you. At the point when I started meeting people, I was in the idea of fundraising. But like those first two weeks when I first started it, that wasn't the idea. I was just tweeting. And I met a founder of a company called RoboAmp, um, a gentleman by the name of Roberto who was a Latin guy based in Dallas, Texas, trying to build this cool B2B SaaS company, and nobody was trying to support him. And it didn't make sense to me because like, he had the numbers, he had the growth, he had partnerships, and he couldn't raise any money, right? And it was like, this doesn't make sense. And so I started to try to do a special purpose vehicle to do a one-off investment in his company because I worked for the state of Maryland. And that's when one of my mentors said, hey, here's some money, I think you should go raise a fund. And it's like, okay, I should go raise a fund. And then that's when I looked up and saw that my Twitter following was growing and that VCs were following me. It's like, okay, let me go learn how to raise a fund. And it just kind of snowballed out of control from there. What's truly amazing is you were able to be extremely helpful to an entrepreneur that clearly needed to be given a chance, like deserved a chance, and just wasn't wasn't actually a given one because he didn't have a network or, you know, whatever the reasons, because, you know, as we know, VC, it's really a very network people business, Uh, just like a lot of industries are. That makes a ton of sense. What has been like for any like new who's listening who someone that maybe wants to start their own VC fund? What were some of like the hardest challenging parts to raising fund one? It takes a really long time, takes a lot of meetings, it takes a lot of no's. Um, you know, under normal times, you're spending a lot of time traveling, going to meet people all over the country just for them to tell you no, right? That part's not fun. I'm not independently wealthy. So when I was starting to raise my fund before my first close and even weeks after my first close, like money was tight, but I knew this is what I was going to do. And so there was nothing that was going to stop it. But that stuff sucks. Fundraising is not fun. What's also like your strategy? Because like, Part of your fund, you're going into, you know, secondary tertiary markets and markets that are very much underserved when it comes to, you know, VCs maybe don't typically look into those markets. What's your kind of strategy to like build relationships with like founders like across maybe like the country that are outside, you know, the Silicon Valleys of the world, the New Yorks of the world and and what have you? Twitter helps. Twitter's everywhere. So Twitter, like a lot of this always goes back to Twitter. Um, being very thoughtful about the accelerators and incubators I speak at. Right. Speaking of accelerators in the Midwest, in the Southeast, in the, those tertiary markets, um, being willing to talk to founders off of cold emails, cold DMs, tweets, things like that opens you up to like founders all over the place, opens it up to founders all over the globe. And then, you know, also, you know, as an emerging manager, I have a lot of friends who are emerging managers who are also investing in these nascent places who are sending me deal flow. So like all that stuff builds on itself. That makes a lot of sense. What are a couple of your favorite accelerators that are still, you think, very under the radar? I don't know how under the radar they are, but I love Generator. Generator's got, you know, great companies all in the Midwest. Um, 
Techstars is everywhere now. So like, you know, Techstars is a gigantic network. So I love Techstars folks. 500 startups. I have a, a love in my heart for 500 startups and they send me good stuff. But then you got like these off the beaten path accelerators like Accelerate Baltimore, you know, the Accelerator locally, uh, Velocity, the Accelerator in Birmingham, Alabama, right? Like those kind of accelerators, you get some really unique stuff out of if you watch closely. So, you know, those are the things I, you know, those are the places I like to spend my time. We invested in the company Rebundle, you know, it's plant-based, biodegradable braiding hair. And before I invested, I ran a competition on Twitter to give away some of the hair to folks who would, to women who would tell me stories, horror stories of like interacting with fake hair. The amount of women and the depth of their stories and the pain they depicted in those stories was so significant that it was like impossible to ignore the, the, the enormity of the problem, right? And they were sitting on two macro trends of sustainability and creating a product that was healthier. And we saw that in the reactions where some people were talking about they just wanted to live a more sustainable lifestyle. Some people were talking about they wanted to use synthetic hair that wasn't going to be irritating to their scalp. Some people wanted both. And it's like, okay, this is validating all the things we think about in the market. So I actually helped out the founder as a way to validate and do due diligence on them. That's amazing. What I love about that is if you've used Twitter and, 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 and leverage Twitter, obviously amazing to build your network, build relationships, and build a fund. But what you've also done is use your network to actually validate you know, ideas and actually really be helpful to founders, whether you invest or not, but actually see if there's actually something there. I love that example to rebundle. And I love also the way that you think about social media in not only in like the VC world, like in terms of, you know, raising a fund and like what have you and like, you know, being helpful for founders, but also like being helpful for founders in that, hey, like, let's see if this really is like a real pain point that you'd be solving for people. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I got a community of 60,000 folks, you know, Let's all work together. It's amazing. Love it. Love it. Talk to me through like a day in the life of an emerging manager. Every day, every day you got your calendar of, you try to catch up on emails you missed the, the night before. You got a to-do list of founders you got to catch up with, introductions you got to make. You probably have several meetings throughout the day, you know, meeting with founders, having second meetings with founders. You know, going over companies with your team, meeting with potential LPs and either in your current fund or future funds, meeting with operators that could potentially be employees for your companies, dealing with the massive amount of emails that come in as you can, and then also dealing with like just day-to-day operations of the fund. So, you know, making sure management fees go out, making sure capital calls are happening, making sure, you know, all the fund documents are in the right order, making sure that you're getting all the data you need from your portfolio companies, making sure your portfolio companies don't need help. So every day, some combination of those things. And that day could be anywhere from 8 to 2 in the morning, or it could be from like 8 to, you know, 6 in the evening, right? The 8 to 6 in the evening are, are typically rare for me these days, but sometimes that happens. But 8 to 2 in the morning, that, that happens. That happens a lot. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I think it goes to show just all the different kind of shuffling and all the different types of people that you're dealing with, right? For anyone that's thinking about what's the reason why someone you think should start a fund versus joining a fund? If you're thinking about starting a fund, I would tell you 
make sure you have a clear viewpoint and thesis that you truly believe can make money for your LP, right? It can't just be a mission. It can't just be a passion. It's got to, like, at the end of the day, what we do is we are glorified financial advisors. We have wealthy people and wealthy organizations who give us money to make them more money by investing in private companies. And so having a clear viewpoint, a clear thesis, and clear thought on a clear strategy of how you're going to do that should be number one. Number two, if you want to start a fund, you should have in your mind, be prepared for a 15 to 20 year career of just doing that, right? Because a fund is going to be a 10 year commitment, right? Start there. Uh, Two to three years in the fund one, you'll go raise fund two. Okay, now you're 12 to 13 years out. Two to three years in the fund two, you're going to raise fund three. You've now got six, you got 15 to 16 years worth of like committed to your part, to your investors over the course of these three funds. That's the next 15 or 16 years of your life. This is what you're going to do. So be prepared for that. And so I would say also make sure you love what we do because this job isn't always easy and it takes a lot of time and you're going to sacrifice some things to do it, right? Like it ain't just all fun and parties and conferences, right? Like it's, all, it's a lot. So be in a place where you truly want to support these founders or to be an asset manager in this asset class because this is what you're passionate about. Not just because you think it's cool, not just because you think it's fun, but because like this is truly what you want to be, what you want to do. Like I'm going to spend the rest of my life, like this is the last job I'll ever have, right? Unless barring something crazy, it's the last job I'm ever going to have because I love supporting and backing these amazing founders that we have and I love making money and I get to do both. What motivates you every day? The founders I support. Like the number of founders who may not have a business today had I not written them their first check. That gets me up out of bed. You know, the, 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 the founders who reach out to me and thank me for the advice I gave them along the way, even though I didn't invest in their company. Or the LP who writes me a note of, before I met you, I always wanted to be the last check in the seed round. But after meeting you and hearing the stories of the founders you back, I now want to be the first check in the pre-seed round because it matters. Those are the things that get me up out of bed every day. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? There's a lot I would change. I would make it more diverse. Probably that's the one thing I would change. I would either make venture capital a lot more diverse or I would change some of these archaic rules where would that limit the number of LPs. Like if I didn't have to worry about number of LPs, we'd have a $250 million fund in the next three months. Like guarantee. Like I promise you we could make it happen um, and we would do well. But, you know, first and foremost, I would, I would make venture more diverse across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? It's the same book. Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? It's the life story of Reginald F. Lewis, a black man who was a lawyer and later became, uh, got into private equity and became a billionaire who was originally from Baltimore, some of the worst parts of Baltimore. It is an amazing book about an amazing individual who comes from my city who does what I do just in a different asset class, just in a different level, the same asset class. That book has been profound in letting me see 
somebody who looks like me make it in this industry and somebody who looks like me has a background coming from the same city I came from. So both professionally and personally, that's the book. That's amazing. I definitely, definitely need to check that out. And no one else on the show has mentioned this book. So really excited to add it to our reading list. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I'm, I'm, I promise you, you'd enjoy it. Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely need to get it. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? As unique and creative and as thoughtful as you are about your product, be just as unique and creative in your customer acquisition. Because customer acquisitions was going to get you paid, either in revenue and customers or in funding. So don't put all your brain power in just the product. Put just as much brain power into your customer acquisition. Don't just default to, oh, we're going to look for influencers or we're going to buy some ads. Like, no, put some real work into that. It'll pay off, I promise you. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I've ever received, do what you love. Because life is short and everything is hard. So whatever it is you're going to do is going to be hard. So at least if it's going to be hard, do something you love to do. I love that. I love that. Absolutely agree there as well. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Mike. This is fun, man. And there you have it. It was such a blast chatting with Mac. I highly, highly recommend following him on Twitter at MacTheVC. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.